When Margaret Montgomery was a little girl, a man came to their apartment door. This gentleman came in and he had a briefcase and he had an accent. He said, is John Travers Montgomery live here? And I said, yes. He sat down he met my father and he said, you know, all the family has passed away and you are the heir of the estate in Tipperary. I was ecstatic. Never was a man so welcome to adore. This forgotten Irish property would save Margaret's family from destitution. They had just had the most incredible 11 years. They had owned millions because of her and lost millions because of other family members. Margaret Montgomery was at rock bottom. She had some story to tell. This is Colston Hall, a concert venue in Bristol, England. On stage is a small group of musicians. Beside them, a large screen. It's showing a Charlie Chaplin silent movie. We've all seen silent movies on TV, but it's different on the big screen with live music. The pianist, Neil Brand, while he's part of the movie performance, it's also as if he's part of the audience too. He's like a woman in the cinema who laughs so loud and infectiously she makes everyone else laugh more. The film is Easy Street and Charlie Chaplin is a policeman, an unlikely policeman. He's being beaten up by a big bully, an enormous man, twice bigger than Charlie in every direction. And of course the bully has heavy black eye makeup. He has Charlie around the throat and he's shaking him like Homer shakes Bart. Neil, the pianist, and drummer Frank Bocchius emphasise every pratfall and every slap. This is a rehearsal for the Bristol Slapstick Festival, a festival celebrating silent movies. Cue the violinist, Gunter Buchwald. Cut to the impoverished family, broken down mother and father in a tenement flat full of babies and toddlers. There isn't a surface that doesn't have a child on it. This programme is about a woman who was just such a baby in silent movies, but she would never have appeared in a scene like this as an extra. She was too big of a star. In 1924, I made $2 million. Diana Sarah Carey. Hello, how are you? I'm Roland. Nice to see you. Diana is also at the Bristol Festival, where she's billed as Baby Peggy, her screen name. She's now 87. When I met her, I brought her a small present of Irish linen napkins. This turns out to be significant, as we'll hear later. You're listening to Flux, which is a programme of stories. Flux means flow, which is what every good story does. And flux is also a substance which helps bind things together, which is what every good story can do. This programme features the story of Diana Sarah Carey. She began life in 1918 as Margaret Montgomery. Her father had been a cowboy, 
and when that work dried up, he moved to Hollywood along with about 200 other cowboys to work in silent movie westerns. Her mother had never seen a movie being made, so she went along to the studios one day with a neighbour who worked as an extra and who was meeting the director to pick up her wages. Margaret was 19 months at that stage, and she was put sitting on a stool near the set. The director noticed her. The studio had a problem, and she could be their solution. They had a star, a dog, called Brownie. He had been a star globally, you know, in silence, for, oh, a good three years. But they needed a child to work with Brownie. They tried Margaret, and it worked. The first film they made together was such a success that she was given a contract. I started at $75 a week, which is what they were paying the dog that I worked with. One still picture from the time shows Margaret sitting in a high chair with a bib on and the dog feeding her with a spoon in his mouth. Within a year, I was already pretty well known, climbing up on Brownie's fame. Then I became extremely popular all over the world, Europe and Ireland and England and Japan and, you know, everywhere. Margaret was given the name Baby Peggy. Over the next couple of years, she made 150 20-minute films known as two-reelers. I went to work at 7 o'clock in the morning, six days a week, until, you know, 5 o'clock at night. And Baby Peggy's work didn't finish at tea time. I opened uh, theatres, supermarkets. (laughs) I opened... uh, the Elks Club and the Lions Clubs. I came in as an Egyptian queen carried in by six Nubian slaves, literally. And my sister would weep. She was older than I, not very much. But by that time, I was, say, four. And uh, my sister would cry, why can't I go to these parties? I could never explain to her it wasn't a party. I was sick and tired of it, but I never complained. She also went to special showings of her movies where she would appear on stage afterwards to perform a short routine with her father in which he would get her to display a range of emotions. Her father was at her side all the time. His own career as a screen cowboy and stuntman was on hold. He told the media that baby Peggy was such a good actress because she was so obedient and easy to train. She says he saw working with his child as akin to working with horses. He was right on top of the situation, and he was very much of the authoritarian type of father of the Victorian era. Baby Peggy was one of a long tradition of child stars going back to the mid-1800s in America. The 19th century, so many children had short lives. They died of so many things, diseases, you know. Childhood was prey to so much illness. So if a mother had seven or eight children, she lost three in childhood. A lot of people who lost children were stiff upper lip types, you know, they they couldn't do much about it, so they just tried to muddle through. And the parents would go to the theater and weep the tears they didn't shed at the bedside. If baby Peggy was followed by Shirley Temple, she was preceded by Lotta Crabtree and little Eva. It became an act of, of true faith to go to the theater to see little Eva. She died three times a day very edifying and with the, with the benefit of wire, you know, and she ascended into heaven. And people were just, ah, you know. And But this child, she had a certain power because she, older actors couldn't bring people in always, almost always. So she was the first child star. When was she? 1853. Okay. And a year or two later, a lot of Crabtree was discovered in the California mines in the gold rush. And she became what they call a fairy star. 
F-A-E-R-Y, you know, because these little girls danced and sang, and the whole 100,000 people that rushed into California were bachelors or fathers or brothers, and they didn't have any women or children around them. And they just adored children. They used to run up to little Lotta's carriage in the streets of San Francisco and burst into tears. And her mother didn't miss a shot. <laughs> she knew. So um, Lotta became the darling of San Francisco. The work on the set was tough enough for baby Peggy. She did all her own stunts. She recalled some movie people then thought that children were so flexible and so rubbery that they could tolerate rough handling. The combination of comedy and children was a winner in the silent movies. I was crying in the, in the comedies when I was 20 months old. My very first film, I have a crying scene with a man that apparently was my, he was my father, I guess. And she starts to suddenly, the building's on fire, and I, I thought, my God, here we go again, you know. And uh, she's very frightened by the fire, but frightened for her father. And so she's wringing her hands and she starts to cry. And then she dashes away her tears and, you know, and then she goes on with the rest of the movie. Why do you talk about her in the third person? I always do because we drifted apart. We had some real battles, me and maybe Peggy, because she's like, she was to me what maybe uh, Henry Fonda was to Jane, overwhelming. You couldn't get out from under her shadow. Working full-time, baby Peggy was missing out on formal education. You sit down with the teacher, say you're there for one day or a week, and you've never met me before. We sit down and she says, where are you now? And I would say, oh, we just did fractions. Don't try to teach me fractions, you know. But uh, what do you enjoy? I said poetry. Loved Irish poetry and English poetry and any kind of poetry. And I just read books and books of it. And she said, okay, what would you like to read? And I said, well, what have you got? Well, we don't have the book of the one you like, you know, Wordsworth or whoever it was, Keats. But we have this one, okay. So I would just open the book. Okay, on the set, everybody. You put it down. You go back in and do the scenes, scenes or whatever it might be. Then it's lunchtime. And then you go back to work. And then she said, what were we working with, Napoleon? And I said, who's Napoleon? Working full-time, baby Peggy was also missing out on childhood. I was the machine that made the money, and I didn't think it was strange. In fact, I thought that all children worked to support their parents because I didn't know how else their parents managed. And uh, it really was a fact of life to me that uh, I was responsible for my whole family because they didn't work. Um, My sister would stay home all the time, and one day... When the set wasn't ready, I had to stay home that day on a weekday. And I never stayed home on a weekday. And so we were out in the backyard playing, and I heard this uproar next door in Beverly Hills. And I said, what's all that noise? And Louise looked at me sort of suspiciously. And she said, well, look over the, over the fence and look in. And I looked over, and here were all these kids on slides and merry-go-rounds and whoop-de-doo, you know. And Louise, she told me this, because I don't remember the episode, but she told it to me, and she was so horrified. I looked over, and I said, what are they doing? And Louise says, you've got eyes in your head, they're playing. It's a birthday party. And I said, but it's a weekday. Why aren't they working? Who's taking care of their parents? And Louise was just floored. (laughs) 
did nobody say give the kid a break? Ah. Or did nobody say nobody. you're taking this child's childhood away? No. Life was materially very good for the family. We had a big house with servants and stables and my father had a pension for cars. We had a Duesenberg and a Piercero and, you know, so forth and so on. But having a child as the main breadwinner wasn't that healthy. We're dysfunctional. I mean, the whole family was dysfunctional. But my fame made it that way to a great extent. The minute the child begins to earn millions, the family falls apart. Because it's upside down. It's, it's upside down. You got the message. The parents are the dependents. The child is the provider. But at least there was the money. That is, until baby Peggy's father did something really stupid. He was on the road making public appearances with baby Peggy, and he needed someone to manage his affairs. And mother was very distant. She didn't even know how to make out a check. She didn't know if we had a savings account. Margaret's father decided to give his own stepfather power of attorney. He withdrew a million and a half dollars from baby Peggy's production. So this is your step-grandfather? Step-grandfather. He was vice president of the, of the corporation. And what did he do with the money? He disappeared. He not only took the money, he took the silver and the china and the, and the linens. That's why I like linen. <laughs> no, it's really true. It's honest to God true. Added to that, baby Peggy's screen career was coming to an end. She was seven and not very babyish anymore. Her relationship then changed with her father. He he divorced me mentally. I could never regain any kind of relationship with him. I could never please him. I could never do anything right. Because when I was a child, he had a psychic Svengali power over me. And I did everything he asked me to do, from stunts to, you know, walking upside down. But when I stopped doing that, I ceased to be of any interest to him. And it was only, again, because of the fame and the money. I'm, I, he liked me when I was 19 months old, but at 20, we were in a different level. And it never came back. You're listening to Flux with Ronan Kelly. This program is the story of Diana Sarah Carey previously known as Margaret Montgomery, with the screen name of Baby Peggy. There was still money to be made for Margaret. The family went on the road full-time, appearing in vaudeville. The act involved Margaret and her father. It was based on a test I made, a screen test once, a policeman on a motorcycle discovers that the little girl has stolen his motorcycle and the opening of the act was the policeman chasing her down the street, you know, and never catching her. And he uh, worked three shows a day and encores and that amounted to about 45 minutes three times a day. The money was good and the family were living out of hotels, which was cheaper. And travel was cheap then. And we didn't maintain servants. We didn't maintain a house. And I was making 3000 a week as a headliner. Despite all this money, there were still worries. Nobody paid by cheque in vaudeville. There had been too many managers. Once you got out of state, you couldn't sue or chase or anything. Mm. So you got paid your money. And I remember the first thing I did on Friday night was look to see if the white envelope was there. The fat white envelope, all cash, $3,000. And I'd always feel relieved because that was... You know, you were sure for another week or ten days or whatever. 
And then there was the issue of child welfare. The Gary Society, founded by a sterling all-American do-gooder, and it was to save children from slums, and especially children that were dancing on street corners, busking as they called it, and working on the stage. The Gary Society went out looking for overworked children. And of course, what ended up was they looked for opportunities for publicity for their cause. And of course, one day they got to me. And I saw them as an adversary because they threatened to take me away from my parents and off the stage because I knew it was a hard life, and I, I never, never complained. I was like the children you hear about that are abused children, but I wasn't physically abused. And by that time, I was 10, and these people caught us backstage. This child has got to appear in court on a subpoena, da-da-da-da-da. And we did. And the judge first asked me to come into his chamber privately, and my father must have had a conniption fit because he had never had me out of his sight with enough down on my family <laughs> to put them in jail, you know. <laughs> so I went in, and the judge, apparently he didn't like the Gary Society much either, so I picked that up real early on. And he said, are you hungry? I said, no, we eat fine, and we live in a nice hotel, and you're a good little actress, you know. <laughs> He's a fan. And so I said, he said, well, do your parents abuse you? I said, no. You know, I said, I know what I'm doing, and... He was apparently impressed. So he came on and he said, this court is dismissing this case. This child is fine. What saved Margaret from her working life was not pressure from a child welfare group, but the talkies. Vaudeville was finished. Between talkies and radio, vaudeville was dying. And it died instantly. It was not a lingering death. When talkies came in, it was like beans could be shipped around the world. Vaudeville acts could be seen on the screen. You didn't, and all of the vaudevillians came out to Hollywood. The end of vaudeville meant that Margaret could at last, at 10 years of age, settle down to be a normal child. And we had enough money now from vaudeville. I had earned about, I figured it out once, and I'm not too good at math, but uh, at least $600,000. We bought the ranch in Wyoming because my father had been a former cowboy, and this was his dream ranch, and I thought I was retired for life you know, in my golden years at 10 years. and um, But after two years, we discovered, my mother too, that he was in hock for mortgages. He had bought the thing on spec practically, and we were mortgaged to the hilt. So at the end of three years, there was a sheriff's sale, and we lost the ranch and everything. We had a 1,500-acre ranch with horses and everything. Do you remember the day you found out that it was going to be sold? Yes. My father stood out there by the chicken house, and the sheriff said, you know, Jack, I'm not going to put the postal notice up on the on the main highway. I'm just going to put it right here, and I just have to post it. Sheriff's sale. And he nailed it to the... You must have had possessions that you could hang on to for the first time in your life, did you? Oh, yeah. As each horse was sold, I clipped a little lock of hair from their mane, and I kept that in a little jewel box for at least 10 or 15 years until the pain wore off, you know. <laughs> did you blame yourself or did you blame them for it? I just was not a blamer. I just played the cards that I was dealt with. I was sort of raised by the cowboys because they worked in my films. I picked up a lot of things from their values. You didn't complain. 
They used to say, you know, if you get hurt on the prairie, doctors are rare as rose bushes. You're either going to get well or you die. You know. Stoic. So I was very stoic, you know. No, I thought I was fixed for life, and I never wanted to go back to work in movies. But she had no choice. So then we went back to Hollywood when I was 13, pretending to be 18, and also pretending to be an heiress of my own millions. And I appeared at all kinds of fundraising benefits for poor people, and doing this act on an empty stomach every day you know, was not easy. I always said it was my greatest performance. Uh, Where did you get money for clothes and things like that, to wear to these things? Well, there was one woman that was a a Goodrich heiress. It was a good friend of my folks, you know. And she had come to the ranch when she found out that we ran a ranch. And uh, she was a very nice gal and very rich. So in desperation, when I was making all these appearances, or was due to, Luella Parsons had had a cocktail party for me. And Mother was down to the, this was the line, you know, so she called Catherine, and she said, we've got to do something. And she said, don't worry about it. Come with me to the Wils- Bullock's Wilshire. And we had a day shopping. She bought me all the clothes I would need and put them on her own charge account. And if I hadn't had that, you know. So these were real crises. The family were almost destitute then when news came from Ireland that they had inherited an estate. Great-great-grandfather, he had this place in Tipperary, it was called Ultram. So in Hollywood, during the darkest days of the Depression, we were, we'd just had an earthquake a day before. And the doorbell rang in our apartment, small apartment. And uh, this gentleman came in. Uh, he got out the papers, said there's nothing wrong. The roof needs a little fixing. But he said um, that and the $300,000 in back taxes... And it's yours. And I just heard tinkle, 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 tinkle. <laughs> I was devastated. And it was just one damn thing after the other, you know. But she persevered. She got an agent who advised her never to undersell herself. I got a part for a series of short comedies to take advantage of the Olympics, which were coming in 32 to Hollywood. And about three or four weeks after we finished the first comedy, they didn't call us back. So my father went around to the studio to see what happened and they'd hired a girl at half my salary. In her heyday as a film star, Margaret had earned millions. She got almost two million items of fan mail, and five women were employed to answer it. That was all gone. Margaret had to find something to do with herself. She had to find a new identity, and she got a job in a bookshop. Her father didn't want her to leave the business. He was now working with Roy Rogers, and he came to her with a suggestion. I was working in a religious goods store, because I was selling the books there. And it was a liberal bookstore, you know, it wasn't just prayer books. And I was a good buyer, and uh, so my father said, you know, you ought to give up pushing rosaries. <laughs> I said, well, I said, it's a job. I'm not skilled for too many things. I didn't learn anything, you know. So he said, well, I think there's a job out of Republic for you that you'd like. And I said, doing what? He said, well, it's, it's a coincidence, you know. He said, you want to be a writer? He said, Roy Rogers needs someone to answer his fan mail. I said, thanks anyway. Margaret's first marriage was a disaster. After her divorce at 30, she went back to Hollywood, which she admits was a mistake. She describes herself then as unglued and still searching for an identity. She says she went through a five-year period where she boarded on a nervous breakdown. Finally, she met and married Bob, her second husband. 
she became a buyer with a university bookshop and began to write history books, Mexican and Western American history, as well as Hollywood history. She says finally she was accepted as a capable writer. Margaret now calls herself Diana, and she feels she was damaged by her childhood in the movies. This came home to her when she had had her own child, a son. My husband said to me one day when Mark was three, and it was a little boy, and he was just a doll, and he said, you know, I know you love this baby, but he said, he's three months old now. I said, yeah, I can't believe it. And he said, you've never kissed him. I said, no, I wouldn't do that. We're going to be friends. I said, I want him to be a friend of mine. I don't want to be imposing upon him. Because everybody grabbed me and hugged me and kissed me, you know, I mean, that could. <laughs> and sometimes they were the mayor of the city and you didn't turn them down. One day I looked out the window and Mark was about two and he was in a little sandbox Bob had built for him. He was having a ball out there with his little bucket and his things. And, and I said, I'm awfully happy to see Mark so happy. But I said, it just doesn't seem normal to me, and then I'm mad. It makes me very angry. Why isn't he working? That's the show. Thanks for listening. There's programme information on the Flux page on the Radio 1 section of rte.ie. 